0: Uh, I want to encourage you to turn with me um, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you'd know that we are walking our way through the first three chapters in the book of Genesis this fall together. I'm convinced pastorally that they strike just the right tone, that they apply just the right medicine for our hearts at this time. Some of the foundational ideas here I think are really helpful for us. And uh, at, toward the end of the uh, fall and into the Advent season, we will then continue that with the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. It's kind of a bookends of the Bible sermon series, and I'm, I'm eager and, and thankful and uh, excited to be back in it with you today. So Genesis chapter 2 in particular, our sermon text is verses 18 to 25 of Genesis 2, And then I will be pairing this, as I've mentioned, with a reading from the Old, I mean, from the New Testament. Um, The New Testament writers are building on the foundation of these ideas, and I just want to help us see that connection. So we're just listening carefully to God's word to us. Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And we're not ashamed. From the book of Ephesians, would you hear these words? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would do the thing that only you could do, and we rejoice tonight that it is also the thing that you have promised to do. Lord, we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would shine light on our hearts, particularly tonight. Would you shine light on some of the deepest longings of our hearts? Lord, would you shine light on these words from your word? Would you shine light on the words that I prepared? In your kindness and in your mercy, would you use them to give us such deep and lasting hope in our Lord Jesus, we pray. And we pray this in his name, the name that is above every name. Amen. So several years ago, my wife Mandy commissioned me to build a dining room table for our new house at the time. So I got a design. I went and purchased wood and Craig screws, which is a kind of screw that joins furniture together. Some of you are shaking your heads like you know what I mean. Some of you are shaking your heads just trying to make me feel like you know what I mean. And I'll take either one. I got wood glue. I got these clamps to help clamp things together. Um, I bought a few new blades for a saw. And I went out there and I put all this stuff under my carport so that I could work on it despite the weather. And I cut and I measured. See, I should have done that in reverse, right? Right. But I cut, and then I measured, and then I realized, oh, I didn't measure right. So I re-measured, and I cut, and I sanded, and I whittled, and I got splinters, and I went back to Lowe's to get more wood. And I continued that process for a few weeks, and in intense ways over the weekends. And Mandy, or some of our children or friends, would come by, and they'd say to me, how you coming? And I would say to them, well... I've got some material, but I don't have a table yet. And I say that as a way to tell you about my process of creating this sermon for tonight. I went into the workshop, if you will, several weeks ago and began to whittle and carve and cut and measure and remeasure and get splinters and friends of mine who, worked, who work with me have said, how's your sermon coming? And what I've said to them is, well, I have some explanations, but I don't know that I quite have a sermon yet. See, because a sermon is not the same thing as explanation. Okay, an explanation is good and necessary, but a sermon is when something very clear about Jesus' person and work is announced you on the basis of the explanation. Now, in God's grace, and with the help of my friends on my team, I think we've gotten there, but that's the way I want to take it tonight. If you like outlines from preachers in advance, I want to explain some things about this mysterious passage of Scripture. I'm going to explain a series of things, and then at a certain point in a few minutes, I am going to, by God's grace, make this a sermon and articulate to you as clear as I can something so deeply hopeful about Jesus for all of us. So let's begin with this explanation, okay? First of all, it's noteworthy that we end up with something of a change in this text, a change of tone, would you take a look with me at verse 18? Then the Lord God said, it is not good. The Lord God said, it is not good. See, this should shock us, because if you're following this creation tale, everything that God has made has been good. Good. He creates, and there's evening and there's morning, and he proclaims what he has made as good. He creates, there's evening and morning, and he proclaims that the thing that he has made is good. It goes on and on to the point where he makes people. The sixth day, he makes the created animals on land, and he makes people, and he says that it is very good. And then suddenly in verse 18, we all of a sudden learn that something's not good. What's going on here? In verse 18 in particular, we're told that it is not good in particular that man, this man that has been made, should be alone. The Lord goes on to say, so I will make a helper fit for him. And then the tension begins to build. If you look at verse 19 and verse 20, Adam is going out attempting to do his have dominion thing. If you remember the original calling of the first people was to go out and have dominion over the world that god has made in other words to take the world and to use and to begin to make and to shape and to use the raw material to make the world a place where god can be king to be able to go out and have dominion and beat back if you will the the chaos that is going to creep in to go out and and do the thing that he's been created to do and the problem is it's not fully working yet something's not right and the idea that Adam is going out and he's naming all the animals in the ancient world to name a thing in the way in which Adam is doing it is to, in essence, have dominion. And he's trying to go out and he's naming creatures and all the while the Lord God is watching and he's realizing that something isn't right. And the thing that isn't right is Adam does not have a partner. See, if we've been paying attention throughout this creation story, everything has a partner. The light is partnered with dark. The sun is partnered with the moon. The sea is partnered with the land. The birds of the air are partnered with the fish of the sea. Everything has its corresponding partner. But in this case, Adam does not have a partner So the Lord God is going to make a helper fit for him. Let's talk about those two phrases, the word helper, and then the phrase fit for him. Let's explain what's going on here. This word helper in the Old Testament is an important word. Okay, so when I'm with my children, sometimes I will say to them, hey, would you like to come and be my helper? Now, what I mean when I say that is I'm doing a thing, and if you want to, like, come along and participate in it, I don't really need you, but if you want to, like, be cute and help me, like, you can be daddy's helper. That idea is opposite of what is meant by this word in the Old Testament. Opposite. See, the character in the biblical story who will be called a helper in this way most often in the scriptures is going to be the Lord God himself. It's a picture of strength. God is going to give to the man a resource, a strength that only God himself possesses to come alongside as a partner. And this helper in the richest fullest sense will be a helper fit for him so let's talk about this fit for him idea another word might be a helper suitable for him the word the phrase literally is a helper according to his opposite okay So the idea is the woman is going to be created to provide a sort of strength that only God himself provides. She will be alongside, but she will be alongside in the unique things that she will do to be at his side. She'll be able to do because she's not quite like him at the same time. She has strengths. she has ability to enter in and to add to this story of going out and having dominion that he cannot possibly provide in and of himself. And it's precisely her difference, the different strengths she'll provide, that fills out this picture in a beautiful way. A helper in the strongest sense of the term, according to his opposite. And then God goes to work to make her. Look with me at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. What's going on here? Why a rib? Why this part of his body? What's well, there to tell us something extremely important? See, in the ancient world, for something to come, the phrase is literally at his side. See, in the ancient world, for something to be at someone's side is an indication of mutual Partnership—it's an indication of equality, togetherness. See, in the ancient world, if, if Eve would have been made from his head, that would denote that would denote something of her superiority to him. And if she had been made at his feet, in the Old Testament way of thinking, that would have denoted something of inferiority to him. But the idea is she is made at his side. In other words equal to him. Every single blessing given to the man as a human being made in the image of God is to be said about her. She's right there, equal partnership, along his side. Often in the Old Testament, this same phrase of being at side, it's, it's like wartime imagery. Someone who's going to go into battle as a partner at the side, equal partnership. Now, another thing about coming from his rib, the idea here being presented is that she's made of the same stuff as him. The idea is that he is out and he's looking at all these animals and and none of them share that precious image of God thing. None of them are wired for relationship, able to make meaning of the world. A few weeks ago, I told you that I have a dog and I love my dog, but my dog's not making meaning of the world. My dog's not sitting around thinking, I wonder what this means today. See, Adam is out and about among the animal kingdom, and no one is on his level to reason, to be wired for relationship, to enter into this creative calling. So she is made from the same stuff as him, the same value same preciousness of God's image at his side to offer for him strength as an equal partner. Now, at the same time, as I just said, okay, she's different. Now remember, part of the calling to people was to go and have dominion, and the second part of the calling was to multiply and fill the earth. And see, it's precisely because of her physiological difference that she's able to enter into that partnership in order to, put it plainly, have babies. So, so look with me at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He looks at her and he notices her difference. And he notices this call to partnership with her. He notices her difference will be able, will make it possible for her to enter into this calling to be fruitful and multiply. And then verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is the writer's way of telling us, you know the whole marriage thing that people do? This is the foundation of that whole thing. See, in this text, marriage is not exactly the point, but this story is used as an explanation for how we got marriage in the first place. It's not the focus, but it's by way of explanation. And you know how men and women marry each other? This is when that started happening. That's the idea here. And then verse 25 some of those precious phrases in all the Bible. And the man and his wife were both naked and they weren't ashamed. The idea of being naked and unashamed has to do with being seen as you are, seen as you really are. being seen as you are and seen as you really are, you are then embraced just as you are. It's the idea of being vulnerable in the sweetest and best way imaginable. You know, so often we live under a deep and intense fear, don't we? That if somebody really knew us, they wouldn't love us. Or the opposite of that, we fear that someone only really loves us because if you just give them enough time and they get to know us, that'll go away. And in this case, the man and the woman both knew each other, saw each other, embraced each other. There's no rivalry, there's no anger, there's no competing. Equal partners offering to each other strength the woman being given to provide something that only God could provide right there at his side. The idea that her difference would be a thing to be celebrated, to walk into the creative calling and to walk into the destiny of everything that God intended for both of them. Naked, unashamed. Now, everything I just told you is explanation. Explanation. But this text, especially based on the ways in which the rest of the Bible will build upon this text, would lead us to believe that this text is actually about something even more. And this is the point in which I want to try to turn this to a sermon. Because this text, at the end of the day, especially the way in which the New Testament will talk about it, is intended to help us see that our Lord intends to satisfy all of our deepest longings. Let me explain what I mean. So, when I read this, when I re- read this text, in particular in the way in which it shows us what we're made for. We're made to be relationally connected to someone. The way that this text, when I read it, talks about being naked and unashamed. When I read this text and cut and carve and measure it, I know for me it stokes some of the deepest longings of my heart. And in this text, we have another massive clue about what it means to be human. You and I as human creatures are built with a relational design. God is that way. He is relational in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he has made us to reflect that part of who he is by being related to one another. But more specifically, this text teaches us that you and I were made, okay, we were made for a life-giving, joy-producing, fruitful partnership and relationship with another who is like us, and different from us, at our side, seen, known, and embraced as we are. In other words, we, all of us, were made for marriage. But it's just not the marriage that you think I'm talking about. And the reason I say that is because of the way the Apostle Paul talks about this text in Ephesians 5. If you notice, when I read it, he quotes this text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then he goes on to say, this is profound, but I'm telling you, it's about Jesus and his church. In other words, you and I were made for a life-giving, joy-producing, fruitful partnership and relationship with another who is like us and not like us at the same time at our side, seen, embraced, and known. And I want to tonight announce to you that you will have that fully. That deepest longing of your heart to be in a relationship with another, that longing will be met for you completely by Jesus. Now, while we wait for that day, while we wait for that day of that deepest longing to be met, you and I are called to be a witness. We're called to be a witness that that day is indeed coming. We're called to be a witness to the fact that it is here, it is already, but it's not quite yet. If you are here tonight and you are a Christian, you are called to be a vital witness to the fact that the deepest longings of our hearts will be met in the person and work of Jesus entirety, entirely, completely. You're called to be a vital witness to that fact. And you either are called tonight to witness to that already component of it, or you are called tonight to witness to that not quite yet component of it. Let me explain what I mean. People in our congregation who are married, see, you have a vital role to play. You witness to these realities, and you witness to the already component of this. See, the scriptures teach us that marriage, that Christian marriage, is a shadow thing. It's a thing we're entered into as a shadow of this real thing that is yet to come Later. And for just a few minutes, I want to talk to you, people in the room who are married. I want to just speak to you like pastorally. Have you ever noticed, those of you today who are married, have you ever noticed how on your best day, your best day in marriage, have you ever noticed how in your best day, you're still left longing for something more. Have you ever noticed how, in some of your sweetest moments, I share this with permission from Mandy. But there are nights where Mandy and I will be laying in bed together, and when we stop talking, we're back to ourselves and we're left longing for something more. The reason that that is the case, the reason that sometimes you feel the sting of disappointment is because you only have a shadow of a fuller thing that is coming to you still. If you are married tonight, and you feel the sting of disappointment. What I'm here to tell you is that is normal. The reason why human beings can be disappointed is because we're capable of having expectations. If you feel the sting of disappointment in marriage, that sting is at least partly there. Because you are living a shadow of something that is not quite the real thing. Now, let me talk to you, married people, again. Have you ever noticed on some of your best days, year after year after year after year, Mandy and I have been married for 17 years, the sweeter my marriage to Mandy becomes? it only actually builds my longings for another. For another, a capital A, another, that I will be in union with fully and finally one day. Married people here tonight, you are called to a vital witness to these things. We have to have you witness to these realities. We will not be the church that we can be without your witness to these realities. We must be a church that makes your witness to these realities something that seems plausible, you feel supported in as you proceed. Now let me talk briefly to you if you're not married tonight, if you're single. As single people, you are called to witness to the not-quite-yet dimension of this, in other words, you are called to show us that we still await for the fullness of this vision. We still wait for it. You are called to remind us that we still wait fullness. We're still waiting. And waiting's a hard thing to do. If you are here tonight and you're single and you have felt the sting of disappointment there, that's normal. We are capable of being disappointed because we are capable of having expectations. And waiting is a very difficult thing to do. But you provide for us a vital witness to these things. We cannot at Grace Fellowship grow up into the full measure of the picture of the gospel without your witness. We are less in every way without your witness to these things. And we are supposed to be a church community that's at work to make that witness plausible for you, that you feel supported in it. But for all of us, whether married or single, Truth of the matter is, we were made for this partnership, this relationship. We were made to be known and embraced fully and finally. And the Lord intends to satisfy every one of these longings. In other words, there is coming, going to come a day when shadow things become substance. There is coming a day when deep longing becomes full fulfillment. Scriptures say that there is a day that's coming that is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb when we finally receive these things in their fullness. And the Bible will teach us that in that day, we will not be disappointed. This is the last thing I'm going to say before we prepare to celebrate Communion. Y'all, I used to think being a Christian was sort of a, sorry, pal, you can't always get what you want. What I'm learning instead is that being a Christian is, listen, friend, you will absolutely, a million percent, always and forgive forever, get what you actually want eventually because what you are actually looking for in any relationship is you're looking for Jesus and the promise of the gospel is that you have him and you will be united to him one day fully and finally our God intends to, in his time, satisfy every single one of our deepest longings. Let's pray. Lord, these things are easier to talk about from a pulpit than to live in the hope of. Lord, in our day-to-day relationships, God, in our moving about in a broken and fallen world, Lord, in our moving about in the aches and pains of being a human person. So our prayer is that you would use the truths in this text of the deep desire we have to know another, another who is like us and different from us, that you would fix those desires and hopes, Lord, on you. Lord, I pray that weary souls tonight would be refreshed in knowing that you intend to meet us in those deepest places with your love. So I pray that these things would encourage our hearts in powerful ways tonight, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.